So I have good news and bad news. The good news is you have the skills. The bad news is the reason you keep getting rejected from that job is not because you don't have the skills, it's because you don't know how to interview. Which is why today, on today's Breaking Stars episode, we wanted to have a conversation with the founder of Interviewing IO. Interviewing IO teaches you how to interview so you can get the job and explain and, and demonstrate that you actually have the skills. I know that's frustrating. Um, I've been there before, but I would say that my interview prep experience trying to trying to get into a job was some of the, the most formative times of my life and helped me get a sense of who I am and how to tell my story and how to fit it into any environment. And so it's, it's worth the practice. Um, for those of you that don't have the skills, that want to develop the skills, uh, the Breaking Stars podcast explains what's going on in the tech world and the programs that exist so you can develop the skills so that you can go into the job search and begin interviewing. So if you fall into that category, make sure you listen to all the past episodes and subscribe and leave a review and all those other things. If you know someone else that doesn't have the skills, please tell them to do the same thing as well. Like our page on Facebook and join our community and tell your friends and introduce yourself so you all can get the skills and start practicing as well so you all can can land those jobs too. Um, And if you have any other things that you're currently dealing with, that you're frustrated with, that you want to learn from or hear from, please feel free to reach out to Arthur, Timo, Patrick, or me, which is Ruben, R-U-B-E-N, at breakingintostarters.com so that we can learn and get feedback because feedback is a gift and we want to get better. And thank you for making us better. The longer the emails, the better because we want to improve. Without further ado, let's break it. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Archon Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking the Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, definitely. So today uh, we're recording this episode out of Hustle. And it's a Sunday morning. So there's a lot of people doing hikes. They're maybe sitting there at brunch drinking bottomless mimosas. But we're out here at Hustle drinking LaCroix and we're about to talk about some interesting facts about interviewing, getting jobs in tech and breaking in. Ruben, can you please introduce our guest? Yes, sir. So you might have read about today's guest, Aline Lerner, on the front page of Hacker News. But if you haven't, you need to check out her blog post because she writes a lot of articles that are the best in the game about job search, hiring, and the future of work. And today, we're not talking about games. We're talking about practice, specifically interviewing IO, which is a platform for engineers that practice technical interviews and land jobs at the top tech companies. Millions of people have read her writing. Thousands of engineers sign up to work with her platform every single month. You could check her out in TechCrunch, Bloomberg, and all kinds of other publications. But I want to take a step back so we can address some things about misconceptions, how she used to be a professional chef her tie to being in the Soviet Union, a bunch of other things. But first, I just want to give a huge shout out to our head of sales, Ana Diaz Hernandez, who is also here in the room with us. And so thank you for setting this up. And Aline, thank you for joining us. Welcome. And yeah, let's go in. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're excited as well. So 
How do you go from being a chef at a restaurant to being the founder of one of the largest platforms in the game focused on getting people into tech companies? Well, it's uh, one day at a time, I guess. I am a much better founder than I was a chef. I will say that. (laughs) My background is I learned to program when I was pretty young. I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a living, but it's something, you know, I came from the former Soviet Union, came here when I was a kid. So, of course, I had immigrant parents who insisted that I had to do either engineering or go to medical school, and I didn't want to go to medical school. So that was that. But my path was a bit windy because after I went to school, I ended up starting to study computer science, changing to brain and cognitive sciences, which was to me a lot more interesting and I think helped me learn to write, which being useful later in life. After I graduated college and I was very fortunate, I did end up going to a very good school. I decided to kind of take another path. I was pretty burned out on on school and academia and all of that and ended up cooking for three years. But it actually ended up being, I think, one of the unexpectedly most productive things I've done because it really helped shape how I think about hiring. You know, I was telling you guys, when you want a job in a restaurant, mm-hmm. they don't care about your background. They don't care about your hopes and dreams or your biggest weakness or any of that stuff. They just care about whether you can do the job. Yeah. And when you come in for a job interview, you bring your knife kit and they make you do stuff and they watch you do it. So, you know, you're chopping vegetables, you're setting up for a dinner service, and then they show you the dishes that they're on the station that you're shadowing and you put out those dishes all night. And if you do a good job at the end of the night, they feed you and you get a job offer. (laughs) And if you don't, they send you home. And if they feel sorry for you, they feed you, but maybe they don't. And I just thought that was amazing, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you can do the job, you get the job. And that always stuck with me. And When I ran out of money and decided to go back to programming computers, I was very surprised to see that the way people get jobs in startups and larger companies is not meritocratic at all. And so much of it is based on your pedigree, you know, where you went to school and where you worked before, which seems unfair because so many people that we know that are the best engineers don't have a pedigree. So many of the best engineers that we all hear about are college dropouts or maybe didn't go to college in the first place. And yet the system is not set up to favor those people or ability in general. So that informed how I think about it. And it's a problem that I really thought long and hard about how to fix and have always been very passionate about fixing. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It sounds like you learned a lot of things along the way coming up to here and specifically writing. I mean, I think your writing does jump out and from what I understand, it's like a big source of the people coming to your platform. What would you say are some of your most formative pieces, like there's a lot of research in there, like what's the piece that you would recommend people to, to read and what would they, what insight would they gain out of that? Yeah. So probably one of the most surprising pieces that I think changed the way I thought about hiring and I think has changed the way some of the people that have read it have thought about hiring is one of the first things I ever wrote. So when I decided I wasn't going to be a software engineer, I ended up doing recruiting in an effort to try to understand some of these things that I had seen as broken and and understand them from the other side. So I ran hiring at a company called TrialPay. And at this company, one of the things that I was trying to figure out is, can I look at someone's resume and find signals on that resume that are maybe things we don't expect? So things that we don't look at, but that might actually be more useful in figuring out if someone's going to be a good hire than the obvious. So, you know, going beyond where they went to school. And I ended up running some numbers and looking at the resumes of everybody that we had interviewed over the course of a year and everybody that had gotten offers and trying to see 
what were the common threads among the people that had actually gotten offers. The crazy thing is so we looked at everything, like where they'd gone to school, how many years of experience they had, whether they'd worked at a top company, the highest degree they had earned, whether they spoke multiple languages, whether they had a GitHub profile, like everything you can think of. Um, The thing that ended up mattering by far and away the most, more than school, more than where they worked, was how many typos and grammatical errors (laughs) people had on their resume. In fact, where they went to school didn't matter at all. Interesting. Where they worked mattered a tiny bit, but the literacy of their resume just mattered so much more. And you can find that. It's called Lessons from a Year's Worth of Hiring Data. It. it has a lot of graphs and a lot of self-righteous ranting about how the system is broken, which yeah. is what I do. And for the people that don't know, can you explain a little bit more about what interviewing IO is? I know it helps people interview and get jobs in tech, but yeah, of unpack course. it for us. Sure. So when I was a recruiter, I ended up getting, because I had started writing on online and writing a lot about how hiring was broken and it attracted a certain contingent of people that felt disenfranchised by the current system. So people that did not look a certain way on paper. And when I was a recruiter, you know, they're all coming to me and asking me if I can help them find a job. And I really want to. But I realized from looking at a lot of these people's resumes that even I had no idea what to look for and how to tell if they could code. So I started interviewing them just to see. And, you know, if I'm going to present somebody to a company and put my name on them, I want to make sure they're good. And that ended up being amazing. So I told my candidates, these are practice interviews. If you do well, then I can use the data from this interview to bolster your candidacy when you go talk to a company. If you don't do well, no big deal. You can try again in a little while. And that is the basis of what interviewing IO ended up becoming. I remember when I started the company, I thought, okay, well, I'm doing all this stuff anyway. It seems to be working. Why don't I take it from little consultancy service that I'm doing now and turn it into a real platform? Because if you want to drive change, it has to be big. You can't just have a little side business. It has to be something that people know about and it has to get enough mindshare to actually change how companies do things, which is really hard because everyone's very set in their ways. So I remember I put up a really janky marketing site. It said, get free anonymous technical interview practice with engineers from top companies. I put it on Hacker News and I remember I drove to work and then I got to work and it was number one you know, wanted to go throw up somewhere. (laughs) But, you know, we ended up getting something like 7,000 people signing up in the first 36 hours. And at that point, I knew I had to do it. And basically, that's what the platform does. We offer people free, anonymous, technical interview practice with engineers from top companies. You just show up to the platform, you grab time slots, and then you show up at go time, you're paired up with an engineer, there's a coding environment and audio, it's all... Everything is anonymous, so you don't have to use Skype or a phone number or anything like that. And at the end of the interview, you get feedback. You see what you're doing well, what you're not doing well. And we also use that feedback to figure out where you're at and if you're ready to be paired up with companies. Once you do well in practice, you unlock our jobs portal. And at that point, once you're in, you're in. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many years of experience you have. It doesn't matter where you went to school. Once you're in and you've done well in practice, you can just press a button and book interviews with top companies. We work with companies like Lyft and Quora and Asana, Evernote, a bunch of others. And they come to trust us because we know how people do in interviews and not surprisingly, past interview performance in aggregate, at least is very predictive of future. And this is something we're very proud of. Not most, but a good chunk of the hires that we've made are people that companies have actually admitted they probably wouldn't have let in the door otherwise because they are non-traditional. 
And that's the thing that kind of keeps us going. Totally. And you guys have a data set that's probably one of the most like unique examples industry because you guys have thousands of interviews. You have a two-way symmetric viewing of both the people taking the exam and people giving the that's interview. Right. So I guess from all those examples, I think one, one data, data point that stuck out to me was kind of the probability of someone failing, not doing well in a particular interview and then doing well in others, which kind of introduces an, another dimension to how broken the system is. Because just because someone doesn't solve one specific problem, we're supposed to judge them based on that and extrapolate like their experience and whether they would do well at a job versus a platform that could look at data point at multiple data points, not just performance on one exam, and be able to like more accurately evaluate someone's ability. Yeah, I think you've touched on a very core problem in this industry, which is that the interview process itself is not deterministic, right? Mm-hmm. You can have the same person go through the process a bunch of times and get different results. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally, something that matters this much for people's careers and, and determines the course of it should at least be fair. So what we've seen is because we have the same person doing a ton of interviews on our platform, even though after some number of interviews, they start to converge a little bit mm-hmm. from any given interview to another one, it's very possible that they'll succeed and fail and succeed and fail and just oscillate pretty wildly. And this actually is, I think, particularly damaging to people that are just starting to break in mm-hmm. because they haven't had the benefit of being socialized in this culture. Like if all your friends have been doing technical interviews for their Google and Facebook inter- internships for years, like they know that the interview is kind of a numbers game and it's a bit of a coin mm-hmm. flip and you know, okay, you fuck one up, you keep going, no mm-hmm. big deal. But if you're not used to that and your friends aren't talking about it, the first time you mess up is going to be damaging. And, you know, I've, I've seen people have, do poorly in one interview and never come back. Mm-hmm. And it's such a shame, I guess, if anything that uh, listeners take away, it's just you've got to keep going because it's a game and it's kind of rigged and (laughs) everybody in the know knows that and they don't care. What are some of the inherent problems that you see in the interviewing process from the recruiting side? Like, What are some of the mistakes that you constantly see companies making when they're evaluating candidates? Oh, we don't have all day. (laughs) There's so many. Let's see. It's the kinds of questions that they ask. So good interview questions. And being a good interviewer is really, really tough. You know, you mentioned we have symmetric feedback, which means that candidates actually rate interviewers. And that's something that we're really proud of because companies and our practice interviewers for the first time can actually get some feedback into whether their questions are engaging and whether um, they're actually uh, good at asking them. A good interview question is typically not going to be something that requires you to have a very serendipitous aha moment, right? It should be something that tests your ability to think but it shouldn't be something that's tricky. But a lot of questions kind of require you to just have that light bulb go off at just the right time. And that's part of the reason that interview outcomes are so unpredictable is because whether that light bulb goes off or not doesn't necessarily have that much to do with your engineering ability, but with, you know, whether you ate breakfast that day and whether you and the interviewer kind of hit it off or whether, you know, you feel uncomfortable and how much of your adrenaline is up. So it's tough. Another thing that I think a lot of interviewers do poorly is relying on a certain set of of words that they want to hear. So I've interviewed, I've done, gosh, I've probably done like a thousand interviews in my career, like given them, I've only been on the other end of you and I'm not very good at getting interviewed either. In fact, I've gone on my own platform and been an interviewee because it's anonymous and I've messed that up so bad. And maybe one day I'll like release that interview, but I'm still too embarrassed. I've been an interviewer a lot, and sometimes there are candidates that are not classically trained. So maybe 
they don't know the right terms. So, you know, if you're an engineer, you're familiar with big O notation, right? And time and space complexity. And that's, there was one guy I interviewed once who was intuitively like, he had never heard the terms. I asked him to think about efficiency and he was describing it kind of like without using the right lingo. And I was like, oh, okay, he gets it. I don't care if he knows the terms. But if an interviewer is not engaged and if they're just looking for a reason to cut somebody, they'll cut them if they didn't say the right words in the right sequence. And to me, that's extremely unfortunate. I wish interviews gauged potential more than specific knowledge, but that's not always the case. Yeah. And you you bring up a great point that the person who is sitting on the other side asking you questions, they're just an engineer who is probably tasked with completing their user stories for the sprint. And now they're being pulled away from their work and they're saying, hey, go do the interview, ask someone coding questions. And this person is not even trained properly. In some cases, they might be, but in most cases, just one of the engineers on the team who's asking you the questions and they're just doing their best to be able to gauge how good of a candidate you are. So I think it goes both ways. They're looking for some signals. In your case, it's like, do they know about the big O or time complexity? If, if they say that they do and they can explain it, then they get a check mark. But it doesn't actually go deep into like, will this person be a good engineer for this team? Which I think also brings up another point. A lot of the time, what you do on the job is not actually what you get tested on when you take these algorithm problems. And you mentioned that as a chef at a restaurant, you're not being I guess, tested how good you know about nutritional value of the food you make. Mm -hmm. You get tested on, can can you you actually do the job? job? So (laughs) how do you see like this process changing in order for us to get more people who can do the job through the door at these companies? It's a tough question. I think that one of the most unfortunate things, if we look at why the technical interview process is the way it is today, I did some digging to try to understand this because it's a source of frustration for me. It's historic. A lot of what we see in interviews today started in Silicon Valley in the 50s at a company called Shockley Semiconductor. And they were just trying to, what they were doing was so new, right? And they were looking for people that didn't even necessarily have a specific skill set, but could just kind of think in a very specific way. And they were also hiring a ton of them. And that started the trend. Microsoft picked it up, Google picked it up, and that ended up culminating in the process we're seeing today. And that's fine, except that. There are so many smaller startups now that are not Microsoft-sized and are not Google-sized, and they're just blindly taking exactly what the giants are doing without thinking about the implications. It's like a cargo cult, if you've heard that term. And the reason Microsoft and Google have these processes is because they're not hiring for specific teams. They just have an interchangeable assembly line of interviewers that all have to be trained up the same way. And then they can be swapped out at any point and they're hiring a ton of people and companies like Google in particular don't have to give candidates a good experience. And they can also afford to turn away a ton of people because they have a revolving door of candidates that want to work at Google. But it's not because of their interview process. It's despite it. It's because they're doing cool shit. So other people want to do cool shit and they want to get that stamp on their forehead. So smaller companies think, oh, this works for Google. So clearly this is the right thing to do. And they don't think about why. And that's extremely unfortunate. Yeah, I think this is really awesome. As I think about your platform, I imagine like thousands of people sitting around to do interviews, but you must have a really large workforce. How do you incentivize people to give these interviews? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. We have a few different use cases. So when we first started the platform, it was all like peer to peer and people would interview each other. As we've grown, we've discovered that in order to keep up with our volume, we need 
kind of a dedicated lineup of interviewers. So we do have some interviewers that we pay. And then typically what happens is people will join our community. We've tried to foster a sense of community within there. So they'll often volunteer their time and then we'll reach out to them and be like, hey, you're doing this. Do you want to do it on the regular? And then they generally say yes. But that those aren't the only use cases. We also have people that are maybe they recently joined their company and they're a little skittish about becoming an interviewer. Maybe they're at the six month mark or a year mark and somebody from HR comes to them and says, okay, now in addition to working on your actual job, you have to do interviews. And not everybody loves doing it as, as you, know, you mentioned earlier, but there are some people that are passionate about doing a good job. So they'll get on our platform and then they will kind of try out a few questions that they either know they have to ask or are thinking about in an effort to ramp up. And that actually makes a huge difference to be a good interviewer. You have to have asked, I think, the same question at least five times, if not 10. And then the last contingent is we actually have a number of smaller companies that hang out in our practice pool. So we're not working with them officially, but we tell them, hey, you know, if you help us vet our pool and and give practice interviews to help the community get better, you're going to meet smart people and then you can hire them. And for them, it ends up being a win-win. They get to practice being better interviewers. They get exposure to a really high quality candidate base and they have an opportunity to sell people on working with them that they probably wouldn't have otherwise because no one's heard of them. So it's a really nice way for them to build their brand. So you have a bunch of these very disparate use cases in the same pool, but I think it makes for a much richer platform and community and we're, we're happy they're all there. I think it's great having you on the podcast because you, you bring this experience that's unique because you have both the engineering background and you have the recruiting background. And I think you're actually one of the first technical recruiters on our podcast. So I think it would be very interesting to hear from like the recruiter standpoint, how do you go about like looking at candidates and you can take it as back as like someone submits an application online or someone does an internal referral, like what are those steps involved and how does a recruiter typically vet a candidate? Yeah. Let's even take it a step back and kind of before you even come up with the criteria, like what are the internal discussions within the team in order to come up with the criteria of like who to hire and how you're going to be attracting those candidates? Those are great questions. I guess let me preface that with the statement that I think the way that recruiters generally do it, myself included when I was, this isn't others, this was me too, when I was a recruiter, is wrong. I think that the resume as something that decides whether somebody should get an interview is criminal. I think that document simply doesn't carry enough valuable information about a person, especially in our space, to even make that decision. So I can talk about what people look at in resumes and and all, and I will, because that's the reality we live in. But I I just want it very clear that I think it's bullshit and I want resumes to die a fiery death. (laughs) Okay. But let's pretend that that's how the world, that's how the world is. So I guess to answer the question about criteria, it depends. If a company is very large, there will typically, and there's a robust recruiting department and then an engineering manager that's hiring. Typically, a recruiter will go to that manager and do an intake conversation. So then they'll ask them about criteria like, okay, how many years of experience does this person have to have? What skills do they have to have? Can you point to some people on your team that are exceptional so we can try to find common threads? Things like that. One of the I'm going to be very negative. Actually. So one of the uh, kind of downfalls of this approach is that hiring managers are trying to translate something to that recruiter because the recruiter typically doesn't have a technical background. So what a hiring manager typically wants to say is, give me somebody smart that can get shit done. That's all they really want. But how do you translate to somebody that doesn't know what it means to get shit done to get shit done? 
So then they have to start coming up with these bullet points, right? And then if you look at most job descriptions, you're like, well, why are there all these bullets here? Like, do they actually care about any of this? Where is this coming from? It's coming from an extended game of telephone, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that is unfortunate. A lot of the time, you know, even when we at Interviewing IO talk to our employers and we're trying to figure out how to express information about a job that they're hiring for so our candidates can self-select into the right jobs, they'll say, oh, we want five years of experience. And then Anna will ask or I will ask, okay, but do how much do you actually care about that? And then they're like, oh, wait, I actually don't care that much. They're just used to saying it. So it's kind of our job to challenge them on a lot of these assumptions and see what the, sometimes they do care. Sometimes it's a very senior role where you have to have worked on specific stuff. Totally legit. But most of the time it's not. And it's just a proxy for something else. Sorry to interrupt. It also goes to say that a job description is almost like a nice to have. And a yeah. lot of people will not apply for jobs because they, they're like, oh, I don't have a computer science degree. But in reality, it's like, again, can you do the job? Are you smart? Then apply and then let the recruiter figure out. That's right. Especially yeah. the CS degree. That, that's a classic example of something they don't actually care about, but say they do. So how to actually get noticed, how to actually apply and what do recruiters look at? Depending on how hardcore they are about their requirements, they will probably look to see they actually do have that degree, right? It also depends on the relationship that a given recruiter has with a hiring manager. If it's harmonious, then the recruiter might push back and say, you know what, here's a candidate. They don't have a CS degree, but they have a degree in mechanical engineering and they've programmed. Like, is that okay? But every time you do that, you're using a political capital. So it depends on your relationship. And this sucks, right? Because you think that there's some kind of process and everything is fair, but it's not. It's kind of a rat's nest of different incentives. But recruiters will typically look at where you've gone to school, whether you have programmed in the past. They'll look to see whether they've heard of the company where you've worked. And at that point, that's probably all they'll look at because uh, generally they look at every resume for a few seconds. But, you know, I think that even more importantly, especially if you're non-traditional, you shouldn't rely on your resume to get you in the door. You should probably realize that, you know, it sucks, but it's on you to kind of hustle a little bit and do something else. So whether it's you know, maybe you can highlight things about you that are extremely unique or maybe even better, just find somebody at the company you can contact. That's preferably not a recruiter. Nope. So maybe an engineer on the team. If you've read their blog, you have something in common with them. Maybe you've worked on similar projects and just like build that human connection and do that a bunch. And you're probably not going to get responses from everybody. But if you come off like a thinking person that's earnest and has a passion for something and has a commonality, you'll probably hear back. And that's really the best you can do until you've broken in. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also want to preface that we're not hating on recruiters and they're doing the best job they're they can. They're doing the best they absolutely. And uh, it just happens to be that they're good at making relationships with people, connecting with them, connecting them to the people, to the hiring manager inside of companies. And they also have to rely on certain signals that your resume will give off. And they're getting probably hundreds, if not thousands of resumes a week. So they need a way to look at someone's resume and be like, and judge, can they actually do the job? So as the listeners, if you're thinking of like, how do I make my resume stand out? Think of things that will give off those signals of like, hey, I'm different than everyone else who's applying to this company and this recruiter will give me that shot. Yeah, 100%. From what I understand, like as you're pointing out a lot of these flaws in the hiring process, you all give on the interviewing IO platform, you all give a weighted average of feedback. Is mm-hmm. that correct? That's right. So what is in that feedback? Yeah, so it's a good transition. We're trying to replace resumes with something better. And 
we are trying to build our own credential and that credential we want to be based entirely on people's coding ability. So when you get on our platform and you do practice interviews, your interviewer is going to be rating you on a few different dimensions. So these are going to be things like your technical ability, your communication ability, your problem solving ability, and whether they would actually want to move you forward if it were a real interview. And we come up with a weighted average, as Ruben mentioned, of those things. And then we also adjust for different interviewers' strictnesses. So we don't tell our interviewers what questions to ask. And of course, if every interviewer is a human with their own set of biases and their own set of criteria. So the best thing we can do is to try to kind of systematize all of that and correct for it by essentially looking at everybody that a given interviewer is interviewed and seeing how those people have done with different interviewers and trying to get an idea of which interviewers are the most strict. So, you know, if you're very strict and you give somebody a really high score, that actually means a lot more than if you're very lax and you give somebody a high score. So we use all of that. It gets fed into what is to me a black box. And out of that black box comes a percentile. So one of the nice things that we've seen come out of this, and this is something I think our users appreciate, is that for the first time, they can actually see how they stack up. I mean, the interviewing is such a black box. Yeah. A lot of the time, you have no idea how you did, and you certainly don't know how other people are doing. And now you can actually see that. One of the actually bit of a departure, but one of the things we ask our users after each interview is, how do you think you did? Oh, nice. And then we'll actually compare that back to how their interviewer thought they did. And as should come, no surprise to anybody, many of the users on our platform, and I think out in the engineering community at large, have imposter syndrome. So, you know, you always think you did very, very poorly. And in reality, you did quite well. I mean, our, on our system, everything is on a scale of one to four. And candidates will say, oh, like I completely fucked that up. I got a one. And then their interviewer will be like, A plus 10 gold stars, four out of four, you know. <laughs> so that happens often enough to where... You know, that's another takeaway is yeah. just because you think you did poorly yeah. doesn't mean... Are there misconceptions or any, anything else that surprised you once you started looking at the data from both sides? Yeah, we talked about, about this a bit earlier, just this notion of how inconsistent people are from interview to interview. One of the other things is, you know, every company says that they want the top, you know, 10x engineers, top 1%. That's not what the data shows. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. But it, that was also kind of surprising. Like companies aren't very good at having a realistic idea of what they actually want. Candidates also, I mean, I used to be a recruiter. Candidates don't know what they want either. And all of this is so subjective and such a mess that I don't think anybody can really come up with the perfect interview process. I think that the, the only thing that is going to save us here is going to be data and, and a lot of it, which is why we care about that side of things so much. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of misconceptions, I know when I first saw the interviewing IO platform, I thought a little bit of hacker rank and like there's a difference with how you vet and where you vet candidates. Like mm -hmm. what is it actually? What's the difference? And no offense to hacker rank, but no, like, what's, no, no. what is, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah. People do ask us that a lot. And one of the big differences between us and hacker rank is hacker rank is a platform where you can do coding tests on your own time. Right. So no one's breathing down your neck. You can kind of solve problems and hit a button and then it'll grade your solution. And that's a good way to practice as well. On our platform, we don't have coding tests. Everything is an interaction with another human being. So every practice interview is exactly that. It's a practice interview where there is an interviewer on the other end and they're going to be asking you stuff and watching you code and giving you feedback. So it makes for a much more high touch experience. Yeah. And when it comes to people uh, signing up for it, 
interviewing IO, what do you look for? Do you just accept everyone or do they have to meet a certain criteria to be accepted? Yeah. So it depends. We, we're still in beta. We're going to be getting out of beta soon. So there's a pretty long waiting list right now that we're still working through. For the time being, we are giving priority to people that have had a coding job before because we believe that those people are going to be better prepared for coding interviews. If you've never done a coding interview, you're not going to like our platform. It's really going to be like jumping away into the deep end. And for those people, we recommend a tool like Interview Cake, which mm-hmm. has, I think, around 40 problems that you can work on your own time to just get in the swing of things and get used mm-hmm. to the format. You know, you guys can probably attest to this. It's very different solving a problem while someone is breathing down your neck than when you're doing mm-hmm. it on your own time. We did recently launch a university program where if you're a college junior or senior, you can take a very quick coding challenge to just kind of establish that you're ready for the level of practice we're providing. I think it's like 10 minutes. And then once you're in, you're in. And we are hoping to open the platform up more broadly to everybody, you know, in the coming months and years, depending on how quickly we can get through our list. We provide what we think is a very valuable service and and we want to get as many people on there as possible. But we also have to keep up with demand and make sure that we have the bandwidth interviewers that, that are equipped to actually do a good job. Yeah. And tell us a bit more about your team. You mentioned that you guys have eight people right now, which That's is right. pretty impressive that you've been able to scale so fast with only eight people. Tell us a bit about who the people are. And Anna is in the room with us too. And it'd be awesome to hear a little bit about why Anna chose Interview.io and like what her impression has been so far here. Uh, yeah. Let me talk about the layout of the team and then I'll turn it over to Anna. So the team is myself. I'm the CEO and co-founder and my technical co-founder who actually also works on product. He's one of the best, if not the best product mind I've ever encountered. It's kind of crazy how good he is at that stuff. He and I met in college, so we've known each other for a very, very long time. Um, Then we have a couple engineers, one guy that owns our backend. Then we have an engineer who does front end. And he started as a designer and then kind of out of necessity, he's acquired a lot of front end skills. And now he is a beautiful unicorn. (laughs) And we're very, very fortunate to have him. Then we have someone who does customer support. We have Anna here, who's our head of sales. And then we have one more person that, you know, after we raised some money, we started doing more dedicated marketing. And he runs that and also runs BizDev. So that, did I leave anyone out? I think that's the entire team. It'd be embarrassing if I did. Oh, yeah. And Anna, can you just share us a little bit about your background and also why out of all the companies you could have worked at, you chose interviewing IO? Sure thing. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I joined interviewing about three months ago, but yes, I've known like much longer in the best way possible. <laughs> but I've known Aileen for a very long time, almost four years. When we first met, I was working at a social impact venture capital firm in Oakland called Capor Capital. It's a firm that's focused on investing in companies that have a social impact. Mm-hmm. And it also has an element of investing in companies with diverse founders, so founders from underrepresented backgrounds. So Aileen and I met, and one of the key investment foci of the firm is in human capital-focused startups. And so when I heard about this model, I was very intrigued, wanted to hear more about this. And it really came out of, for me, a passion for making hiring more meritocratic. And this element of being able to rank people based off of the activities on the platform and do this in an anonymized manner so as to reduce a stereotype threat as well as, yeah, making everything more meritocratic in the process, right, is, was really very compelling to me. So that's how I first heard about it. And we yeah, stayed in- I pitched to Anna. It was scary. Yes, she pitched me. <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, we became friends. We stayed in touch. After I was at Cape War for a while, I actually decided to go work at Udacity. So I was managing a career partnerships there, helping the students coming out of the nanodegree programs get jobs at companies. And, you know, very much related to a lot of the passions of the folks in this room, right? I've been thinking about this problem of how folks can break into careers when they don't have that traditional background that is really what helps a lot of folks get into tech in the beginning, right? And I frankly come from a more privileged background in the sense that I went to a name brand school here in the Bay Area. I went to Stanford. And even though I did study anthropology, I didn't have that CS degree. The just the access to those connections is invaluable. And I will, you know, I will always, unfortunately or fortunately, like I have that privilege myself, right? And I own that. And I want to make that less valuable so that other folks can break in on more meritocratic yeah. grounds. Yeah. The fact that interviewing is anonymous, have you guys seen that platform work better in getting more folks from non-traditional backgrounds who don't have computer science degrees into tech? Or what sort of things have you guys noticed once you anonymize and take out the person's like background or resume and just look at their t- technical skills? Yeah. Well, so we actually ran some numbers to this effect. Right now, the layout of the platform is about 40% of folks are coming from non-traditional backgrounds and 60% are more traditional. So, you know, either they've gone to a top school or worked at a top company. But in terms of actual interview performance, what we found mattered by far and away more than where people had gone to school or any of that was, and this was extremely surprising to us, almost like the typos thing that I mentioned earlier was just whether they had taken classes on Coursera and Udacity. Like that was the thing. And Anna and I have both worked at Udacity at different times, (laughs) but you know, the data doesn't lie. That to me was extremely encouraging. In general, we just haven't seen that much correspondence between background and how people do in interviews. I think that the only time when it really matters is at the very beginning, because if you've been exposed to these interviews before, you're going to do a lot better than if you haven't been. But once that playing field is leveled out a little bit, a lot of those discrepancies go away entirely. Mm -hmm. And I was actually running the numbers last night because I thought you guys might ask about this, about I think 42%, something like that of the hires that we've made have been to people that we are very certain the company would have not even let through the resume screen. Yeah. Wow. In fact, oh, I'll tell you one last thing. We've had companies actually come to us and tell us, and we've had to update our contract because of this. They'll say, oh, this candidate actually applied to us and we rejected them from looking at their resume. And then they came in through effectively the back door that is interviewing IO. And then they interviewed. They were amazing. They did better than a lot of the traditional candidates we were talking to when we hired them. And whenever this happens, it really forces almost an existential conversation within the company about like whether they're doing the right things when they vet Mm -hmm. people. And you know, through no fault of their own. Generally, they're not necessarily doing the right things because they are over-indexing on pedigree. Yeah. 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 And I think those stats about Udacity and Coursera, very interesting, especially given the fact that a third of the U.S. workforce is going to have to gain new skills by 2030. Having platforms to learn skills and then test them, platforms like yours are, are very interesting. Related to your role specifically at interviewing IOU, also, Anna also work with the companies directly, correct? Like, can you talk, talk a little bit more about like some of, like your role specifically within the company and how, what you've learned so far and all, you've only been there for three months? Absolutely. Well, I head up sales at Interviewing IO, which basically means I work with companies to find synergies and how they think about hiring and help them identify the roles that they would like to hire through our platform, mm-hmm. but also just managing their success, right? I mean, as it is in hiring generally, Oftentimes, companies don't always know 
what it is they're looking for. And when you throw them into a process that's unusual, prompts them to think about all the things that they didn't expect about the process, right? So for instance, company all of a sudden realizes they're having to, they're being put on the spot about the way that they hire, right? In a way that is actually very healthy for them. And they come back to us and say, wow, like you've actually opened up all these opportunities for us to reevaluate some of the ways that we calibrate. So one of the things that we do is we give companies the data on how their interviewers are performing for their account. And that's extremely valuable for companies. They get to see those insights and see perhaps an interviewer is a little more strict than everyone else, or perhaps they ask questions in an unproductive manner in a way that maybe is a little too hardball, I guess, and less productive and making people uncomfortable. And that's the kind of feedback that really companies love having, but they never have that insight because they're not usually in the room. And we actually capture all this data in the admin panel. And so they can rewatch the interview and they can also see this feedback on both sides of the experience. So my job really is first finding companies that are willing to work with us, but more broadly speaking, it's to drive success such such that they will continue to work with us and they will learn. And hopefully eventually they'll implement this in a bigger way throughout the company. And so something that's, I think is important to clarify, which is why I brought up the Udacity and Coursera is you mentioned the credential. I know Coursera has specializations. I think, there may be subtle differences or like how are you thinking about credentialing with respect to your experience at organizations like that versus now interviewing the IO? Well, at least for the moment, we are not a public formal credential in itself. However, I could foresee a future where we could be, right? We could be a badge that you put on your LinkedIn and it says something about you. And maybe in the future that could happen. It's not out of the question. I think in the nearer term, right, for the folks that learn that they have some stuff they need to work on, we of course can help them identify the the subjects where they need most help and point them in the right direction. So those are the kinds of things we're thinking about in terms of offering a whole experience or at, you know everyone on our platform to really help them where they're at and point them in the right way. One thing I'll add to the question about credentialing is, as Anna said, although we don't necessarily expose a score for people, one of the things we're most proud of is that the companies that work with us have come to trust the quality of our candidates. I mean, if you think about it, it's crazy. They're willing to talk to people completely anonymously. They don't know anything about these candidates at all, except that they're geographically suitable, you know, essentially. And they're willing to put their interviewers time at risk to kind of talk to these candidates. And over and over, they've seen that it works. So that's the kind of credential we're talking about. It's more this notion of if you're on interviewing IO and you've done well in practice, that means a lot. And it means that top companies are going to be willing to fast track you through their process because the results they've seen over and over have been compelling. Yeah. And the reality is that these companies, they don't like rejecting people. They want to hire like the smartest and the most capable person they can. It's just they can be like there's so much information out there. And like you said, the interview process is broken. So they have to rely on the existing means. And it sounds like what you're doing and the statistic you mentioned 42% of people who got hired would have traditionally been rejected by them. That pretty much doubles their ability to hire more engineers at a faster pace so they can focus on building these products. What is your vision for the next five years? Like if you had a magic wand and you can fix the process, how do you see this? Like, how do you see these changes occurring over the next few years? Yeah, I would love for us to be a big part of whatever change comes. And even if it's not us, I mean, of course I wanted to be, but I want to see a world where people are judged on what they can do and not how they look on paper. So to me, the way that world will probably play out if we are involved is, you know, we'll start getting more and more adoption at larger companies. You know, hopefully Anna will be with us for a long time and we'll continue to make the ridiculous sales she's already been making. 
And, you know, I think that if we can continue to get adoption at companies that are trailblazers in the industry and hire a lot of people, then over time, you know, that they'll be setting the standard, just like I mentioned earlier, Google and Microsoft set the standard for how to do interviewing. Another thing we're excited about is working with smaller companies and helping them grow, right? You know, we're helping them get engineers today and some portion of them are going to be big. And the earlier you can get into a company and kind of drive how their hiring process works, the more established that new way of doing things will be. So in my ideal world, in the future, when an engineer wants to change jobs, they'll already have this reputation on interviewing IO that they've established. And that doesn't go away. So from job search to job search, anytime they want to find a job, they just get on our platform, click a button and have a fast-tracked interview with a top company, even instantaneously. We're already looking at you know, you can book an interview with any number of top companies on our platform within a day. We're trying to get that time down even further. So you can just on demand, you know, talk to the best companies. And once you've established that you are worth investing in, we're going to bend over backwards and make sure that you have all the resources that you can. It sounds like 10 years ago, there was the travel industry and there was travel agents. And if you wanted to book something, you had to go through them, Kayak and all these different websites came around. And now you just go online and you book it directly. So What you're building now is a platform, right, that allows someone to bypass the traditional process and then be able to get in based on what they can do and not have to deal with like time with and FaceTime with folks who may not be the decision makers. Yeah, I think, you know, we certainly want to to me, the magic is when two smart people get in a room together and solve problems. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, people don't know what they want. If you talk to a person with whom you gel, it doesn't really matter what their company does a lot of the time. You just want to work with them. And you don't typically get to have that conversation until much later in the process. We want to take that magical problem solving collaborative thing that happens and just put it first. And, you know, beyond that, too, we want to help. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're still in beta and we're trying to expand to as many different kinds of users as possible. We would love to have an education arm. I know that this is something I'm passionate about. I know Anna is too. My co-founder is as well. So getting people in the door much earlier, you know, before their path has been set, whether they're much younger, you know, maybe they're high school students, maybe even earlier if we can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, giving them the resources that they need to get into coding and to succeed and start practicing. Not that everybody has to interview all the time, but kind of start practicing the things that you typically don't get from other platforms, like really thinking about computer science in in this way that matters. So, you know, whether it's vertically or horizontal, we just want to get more adoption and we want to move toward that world where things are a little more fair than they are today. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point in our podcast, we do the um, lightning round. And the lightning round is actually where we ask you several questions, but we're actually looking for specific advice that's tactical, any strategies that you've used to get to where you are today. Because our listeners right now, they might be either breaking into tech or they might be looking for their next job after they're already broken in. And you having this experience of being both on the recruiting side, like founding this company that helps people get jobs, you know a lot about the whole process and you can help them navigate. So with that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes it back to the basics. So imagine that you just moved to a new city and let's say you are an engineer or you're an aspiring engineer. And you're trying to break into tech, but you only have $100. Like, what would you do and how would you spend that $100 to position yourself for those interviews so you could eventually land a job? I would probably spend it on a few things. One is a book called Cracking the Coding Interview. I'm sure that's come up Mm -hmm. a bunch of times on this podcast already. 
The second thing is Interview Cake. It's this amazing resource. And I would work on both of those until I'd worked all those problems at least a few times. Maybe not all of them in the book, but definitely all the ones on Interview Cake. And the book has information and not just problems. That's also very helpful. You might also want to, if you have any money left over, a lot of what you're going to need to do isn't just about getting better at coding interviews. It's about hustling. And as we talked about earlier, getting yourself in front of people so you can get your foot in the door. So maybe there are tools you can get to like figure out who works. Like maybe you might want to pay LinkedIn some small amount of money so you can like see who works where and like get people's emails and kind of come up with a list of targets and treat it just as if you were a salesperson, right? Come up with a funnel. And when you're ready, just start emailing all of these people and doing these very targeted blasts. So, and then once you get in, you'll be ready because you will have worked all of those problems. It kind of sidetracks, but from your perspective, if an engineer does get an email from someone who's also an engineer looking for a job and interested in their company, are they reluctant to take the email or take that phone call? Or would you say they're more willing to just share their knowledge and potentially be useful to the company and source a client themselves? Depends on the person, but I think it also depends on how you approach them. Mm -hmm. I think that what I've seen here, and I've been very fortunate, is people are generally willing to pay it forward. So if you come off as somebody that's worth investing in, Mm -hmm. people will invest in you. Not everybody. You have to find the right person. But if you prove to them that their time that they give you is going to turn into something, I think they'll do it. And of course, you know, I should mention this. You should also probably get on our platform and that is absolutely free. So, you know, you don't have to pay anything. But once you've worked all those problems and, you know, you kind of know what you're doing, you'll probably benefit from getting to talk to another engineer and having them give you feedback. And that might even turn into a job as well. You should diversify and do a bunch of stuff because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. This next question comes from Nick Wilson, who's a, he helped to set up this interview as well. So he, he mentioned that you spoke about being a chef at a Michelin star restaurant and bringing your knife kit to the interview. What are the most important skills people trying to break into tech can work on adding to their kit? It depends on whether they want to be an engineer or, you know, something else. But if you want to be an engineer, hands down, you know, you should be good at coding interviews. But assuming you're good at those, you should also have a track record of having built some stuff, right? One thing that we see a lot on our platform and people that we interview for engineering roles at interviewing IO, we're hiring, by the way, you know, maybe they've over-indexed for being really good at technical interviews, but they're not necessarily that good at actually building stuff, or maybe they're not even that passionate about it. So, you know, find an API of like some public API of some company that has cool data and like play with that, make a website, you know, doesn't matter what you do, but just kind of get exposure to different tools and That way you can intelligently talk about it when people ask you what you've built. And that way you can also say confidently that you know how the web works because that matters too. If you're a product person, you should be reading things like Hacker News and other tech periodicals and using various products and thinking about them critically. Like what makes this product have good user experience? What makes it have bad user experience? Why are these features here? What features can be built better to drive more engagement? you know, read, uh, read blogs, find a few tech blogs that you really like and read those and just show that you care, right? Yeah. Like just and care it, about it. And in the pre-chat, you mentioned that you're a negotiator. I mean, you went to MIT, <laughs> you, you talk about this stuff and I know negotiation is a big factor when it comes to do- job search. How do those moments come into play either in interviewing IO or, or what advice can you give around negotiation for yeah. our listeners? Um, so interviewing IO as 
a product doesn't really do much with negotiation yet. But one way in which we are useful is if you can end up with multiple offers and we, we like make it really easy for you to get multiple offers with companies, you're in a better place. Yeah, you mentioned I, I do this recurring lecture at MIT where I teach the students in the computer science department how to haggle. What the most important thing you can really do is just have as many offers as possible and play them against one another. And you should never, ever be the person that says the first number, right? And companies will always ask you for that. They'll be like, oh, how much? And just tell them that you don't know. You don't know what the job is worth to you yet because you haven't interviewed. And depending on you know what you think about the people and what you think about the company, once you've had a chance to find that out, you'll probably have a different number. But you can just say, no, I'm not going to name the first number, but I promise that I will keep you in the loop. And as I get other offers, I'll let you know what's going on. And you can always defer that question. Yeah. And for our listeners, why is it important not to be the first one to name the number? Because it just, you lose so much leverage when you Mm -hmm. do that. Typically, a company knows exactly what the range of salary is that they're going to provide you with. And especially if you're entering this field, there's just this information asymmetry. You don't really know what salaries are. You don't know what they can afford. And they do. So why would you, like, if you name something that's too low, you just screwed yourself. If you name something too high, that doesn't get you any, like you get nothing out mm-hmm. of doing it. Yeah. So you just shouldn't. Yeah. And you mentioned that trying to get the most offer, like as many offers as possible gives you leverage. So let's say you have two or three offers. How would you use those offers to get yourself a higher salary or negotiate for the things you want to negotiate for? Yeah. Well, it depends on whether they're good. And you can kind of decide at your discretion whether you want to share those numbers or mm. not. But typically just telling a company you're interviewing with that you have an on-site at a different company will get you more money. Mm-hmm. Telling them you have an offer, even if you don't share the details of that offer, is mm-hmm. going to get you more money. And one thing you can always do, and this is what I tell my students, is once you know where you want to work, you can say, look, you know, I have all these on-sites coming up. I have these two other offers. But you know what? I really want to be here. And I'll sign today. It's like being the reverse car mm-hmm. salesman. <laughs> like I'll sign today if I can get the following three things. So if I can get an extra sign-on bonus, if I can double my equity, and if I can get an extra, I don't know, 15, 20% in salary, mm-hmm. they're not going to give you all of that. Mm-hmm. But if you ask for three things, you'll probably get two out of the three, at least some portion. Mm-hmm. But then you have to be ready to sign today. So it should yeah. be a company where you really <laughs> yeah. work. And when it comes to a lot of people reach out to us and they're like, well, this company just gave me an offer and this offer is exploding. So they're asking me to get back to them as soon as possible. That's such bullshit, right? Right. So <laughs> how do you respond to recruiters who probably have done it on hundreds of times? How do you position yourself to show them that, hey, I'm still interested in the company, but I'm going to need more time to get back to you, which could come off as if like you're not as eager if they do it in the wrong way? I had my slides because I tell my students exactly what to say in that situation. But Behind the scenes, exploding offers are completely arbitrary. They can always be extended. So that's something that all you listeners should know. It's, it's complete crap. So you can generally say that surely you understand that I want to make the most informed decision that I can. You know, this is going to be a place where I'm going to spend the next four years of my life. And I want to be absolutely certain. And nobody is going to take that poorly. I think they might use, try to use pressure tactics, but it, that's because, you know, as Timur said, they've done this thousands of hundreds and thousands of times before. So you can always ask for an extension. Just be, that means you have to stay in communication. You also, you have to be really nice when you do this stuff. If you're a jerk, that's a different story because then they get more information about you and that could be a reason to potentially disqualify you. Yeah. But if you're very nice and you're open and you promise to keep the lines of communication open, it's never going to hurt you. 
but you do have to follow up with them and not waste their time. Yeah. Yeah. Is it- Interviewing IO International, like how many people from the Soviet Union are on the platform? (laughs) 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 We do get quite a bit of interest from Eastern Europe. I'd say probably 30% of our signups are coming from outside the U.S. right now. We don't yet have that much for those people to do. We do have some companies that hire remotely. We do have a little bit of traction in Amsterdam, London, and Hong Kong at the moment. But for the moment, we're mostly U.S.-based. One of the reasons that we are mostly U.S.-based is the way companies hire outside the U.S. is a little bit different, and we want to be sure that we have our heads around how all those markets work before we make too many assumptions. The last thing you want to do is spread yourself too thin. But there are a lot of companies that have U.S. hiring practices that have satellite offices in Europe and Asia, and that's kind of where we're going to be focusing our efforts to start. Love yeah. the local focus. Sorry. Yeah. Well. Very cool. Now I was going to ask, the, so the next question we usually ask is, it's a little bit personal, but we would, okay. we know that you're a founder of a company. You have a lot of things on your plate. How do you find the time to balance it between work, family, your personal life? And are there any daily routines that you do that our listeners can incorporate into their daily routine? I'm horrible at time management, so I don't think anybody should take any lessons from me in this. But the fact is that if you do something like this and if you found a company, you kind of have to accept that everything else is going to slip. You know, I've gotten divorced while running this company. That's personal, but it's true. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And right now, that's work is pretty much most of what I do. But I think that I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay with that. And I think that if you're thinking about doing this, that's Mm -hmm. something you probably have to be okay with as well. And it's a hard decision to make. I'm fortunate, you know, I don't have to worry about taking care of others right now. If I did, it would be a lot harder, but this kind of thing is all consuming. And one of the hardest things as a founder is you don't know what you should spend your time on it. There's no milestones for like, or or best practices for what portion of your time should Mm -hmm. go to X, Y, Z. It's something that you have to decide. So in addition to doing your work, you're doing meta work where you're like figuring out what is the best use of my time. And one of the hardest things I've had to learn is how to delegate well, right? Mm-hmm. Is this actually a good use of my time? Is this not, you know, this is something that Anna and the team have been very helpful with um, in kind of challenging me to not be spending my time on stupid stuff. <laughs> yeah. When you frameworks that you use to prioritize tasks or are there any like guys like Tim Ferriss that you follow that help you become more like productive on a daily routine? One of the things that I've started doing is just waking up really, really early. (laughs) And that's not natural for me. Yeah. But it's something that I've had to do because the minute you get into the office, your time is not going to be your own. And you Mm -hmm. can carve out time where you say, okay, for the next few hours, I'm doing X, Y, Z. But a lot of your time as a founder is spent speaking to other people, either because you're selling or you're talking to employees or, or you're promoting your company or you're hiring, right? So in order to have the time that you need to think and to do strategy and to do all of that, you've got to find time outside of the day. So the job ends up being from very early morning to very late at night. And I don't know that there are any shortcuts. I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss, but that stuff doesn't necessarily work for me. (laughs) You know, just for me, it's about just trying to get up early and to sleep enough such that my brain works. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of balance and routines and things like that, do you still cook and if not like what are your what's your favorite food to eat any restaurant recommendations here Uh in the bay or anywhere in the world i wish i cooked more these days the problem is like once you've cooked in restaurants it's kind of hard to do it at home 
because yeah, it's hard to cook for one person or two when you're used to doing it and having like all the ingredients and having the really nice equipment and the gigantic burners and the stoves. But I do it every once in a while. And when I do, I go all out. Like I'll spend days pickling stuff and like preparing and like, you know, baking and just like really going hard on that. In terms of restaurants there, let's see. So I'll recommend, I'm going to recommend something people probably haven't heard of because there are a lot of great places people have heard of. If you like Russian food, there's this lovely restaurant. It's either out in the Richmond or the Sunset, but it's called Katya's Tea Room. Katya's Tea, tea Room. All right. All right. We'll like go the, on this weekend. So these guys, I don't know if it's... <laughs> I haven't two. heard of it, but I'll definitely okay. be there. So yeah, for this audience, hey, you guys should check it out. I think it's like being at your grandma's house uh-huh. nice. and you just get like these giant bowls of soup and they're like pink curtains and, you know... <laughs> decidedly not cool it's are, decidedly are there any carpets not- on the wall <laughs> <laughs> they should have some they, they don't but they should that's, that's a very my Russian, yeah. yeah my grandma too that, that was the thing you hung on the wall is these like oriental rugs so yeah if you ever want to like feel like you're at some grandma's house yeah. and you just want like some warm comfort food very this place cool. is amazing awesome yeah. awesome and where do we expect to see you all over the next five years before closing out and how can we keep in touch Hopefully um, you'll be seeing a lot of us. You know, I'd love to keep in touch. I'd love to be a resource to your listeners and maybe find a way that we can do something together down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the address for your blog and your Twitter and all that. The blog. If you go to interviewing.io, there's going to be a link to the blog, but it's otherwise it's blog.interviewing.io. And our Twitter is just our company name. My personal Twitter is it's kind of stupid, but it's my name, Aileen Lerner, LLC, because when I had a recruiting agency, it was an LLC and Aileen Lerner was taken. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Cool. You're a businesswoman. Yeah. Love it. Thank you for taking so much time to be with us today. It's such and a we pleasure. Appreciate Thank it. you. And yeah. we look forward to seeing you in the future. Let's break in. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.